you're gonna destroy my fucking political career now. Because you haven't done so already. Yeah, exactly. I'm really worried about that thing too, because I was like, if this comes out and everybody thinks all I do is walk around chain smoking, drinking, and hating everyone, what? they'll think I'm you. The baffler thing, man. If that oh. comes out and everyone just <laughs> they'll thinks think you're me. they'll think I'm you, <laughs> for Christ's sakes, I can't have that. <laughs> what? Uh, I, I think because I, I then if everybody really reads that and that's like my new brand, they're all like, "Oh, Matt's the guy who hates." Do you think more people would read the print version? Because you've already, you've already been on the website. So mm -hmm. like, the website wasn't anything all that special in terms of, like, ideology. It was, I think it was a decent piece, but, like, this is, like, a full-throated... One thing that telephone fundraising makes you do is really, really hate liberals. <laughs> is one of my pull quotes. I'm gonna fade in on that. <laughs> yeah, well, I do, and if people don't like it, can... What can they do? What can they, they can do? give money when some poor asshole calls them on the phone is what they can do. But I also make it clear that I'm not abandoning the Democratic Party, per se. What you I'm, can do that, too. Talking to the mic, please. I can do that. I'm not going to. What I want is for the Democratic Party to shape up and unify and to go a la gauche. So, as you can tell, based on what we've just been saying, you are listening to the Arts Use podcast. And, and we have been neglecting our duties, and we apologize. Uh, you're on with Lucas Spiro and Matt Hansen, as Hello always. Hello, everyone. And we have been busy. Uh, probably not more busy than all of you, because you're probably busier than us. But we've been we've gone out of town. Matt, you went to New Orleans. Uh, I was in Michigan for a week, and uh, it has nothing to do with anything that we're going to talk about today. But that's just that's the excuse I'm using. So for those of you who have been <laughs> waiting on Tinder hooks for the Arts Views podcast to return. Uh, we're back. We love you. We're sorry that we went away. We miss you. You are our first, our last, and our everything. Yeah, I mean, that, I think I think I saw that on a Valentine's Day card the other day. It's Barry White. Yeah, okay, there you go, yeah. But who speaks truer of the heart than Mr. White? So, we have a great show for you today. And tonight or this afternoon, whatever time you're listening to this, <laughs> in a in a second here, we're gonna bring on our uh, our special guest, uh, Professor Lloyd Schwartz, who is the poet laureate of Somerville, Massachusetts, and he is uh, pretty much. I guess we could probably say he invented Elizabeth Bishop scholarship. It would seem pioneered certainly. Yeah, he is definitely a pioneer. Um, really just uh, a great guy, and I think you're really going to enjoy the interview that we did with him. Uh, and he's he's groovy and uh, really calmed me down because, you know, uh, if you don't know, I, I, I like to get the blood up. And, <laughs> and my, my <laughs> I have been I have been I've been outraged very much uh, uh, in, in, in recent in recent uh, uh, days. And Matt can attest to my outrage and we won't get into that right now. I mean, honestly, we're both pretty outraged and outrageous. Yeah, we're also outrageous. But uh, uh, in a second, we're gonna we're gonna bring on um, Pulitzer Prize winner Lloyd Schwartz, and um, you you may have read some of his his poems in collections like Little Kisses, Cairo Traffic, Goodnight Gracie. Uh, he's been in the Best American Poetry back in '91 and '94. He was in the Best of the Best American Poetry in 2013, uh, and he's got a couple of books that he edited on Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, a book about Elizabeth Bishop's prose called Prose, Elizabeth Bishop, uh, from 2011, and he was co-editor of Elizabeth Bishop and Her Art. That was in uh, 1983. 
So we'll bring that on for a second, or in 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 a moment, and uh, and you'll you'll want to stick around for the whole thing because he does he does read the poetry of Richard Milhouse Nixon, and that's we all do, we all do, yeah. But the way that he does it really gives. I it think the, he really did the best reading. He of all gives of it the, the gravitas the that a Nixon poem really deserves. So, so wait, it's a Nixon around. poem, Lucas, or what is it? It's not literally poetry taken from like look, the diary comes, of Richard Nixon. Look, it comes from a book called The Poetry of Richard Milhouse Nixon. So let's just let's just call it what it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, that's fair. <laughs> um but let's uh take a quick look at a couple of things that are in the arts views uh that are up right now. Um if you didn't know, Virginia Democrats are weird. And by weird I mean uh what's the word I'm looking for? Scandalous. Yeah, outrageous. Um, Bad at apologizing for doing what they thought at the time was non-racist shit, but then turned out to be unreasonably racist. Yeah, beyond beyond like, oh, I, I made an off-color joke once, or or um, and there's had a bad prejudicial yeah. statement about something they didn't know anything about. This was like, I I mean, I have plenty of uh, awkward things I've said in my life and things that I've done that I feel embarrassed about. We all do. There's a level of like human frailty that goes into a lot of these things. The se- the secret I think is that it's not you said something bad, depending on what happens, it's not you said something bad, you are doomed forever to be considered to be uh, a monster, but in some cases it's like there are things that you do that are like completely um beyond um defense. And in a sense, you know, so these are like these are uh high school and st- previous school yearbook photos i think they're med school photos matt so these right. are these are adults who are graduating mm-hmm. from doctor school to mm-hmm. take care of human beings mm-hmm. and, and this is what they do who uh, are like well along in age and and fair and, and yeah and, and so there, there's, adults, both, there, there's, there's both like humor in, in what's what came out of the, the virginia politician thing and also just like in horror because uh one it was like they just kept coming out it's like I did blackface. I did blackface. I did blackface. Like, and it was just like a litany of them. And like, and so you think like, holy shit, how many? Who was not doing blackface? Right. You know, and and lots of credit to um, Trillbilly Workers Party, who did an episode not too long ago where they read a very very long piece from I think it was their local newspaper, the uh, called the Mountain Eagle, where a guy says uh, this outrage is is deserved. The guy who wrote the thing, I think he's a like an Appalachian scholar or whatever it is. But what we need to think about is how there is a very, very entrenched tradition of uh, doing blackface for the purpose of raising money for public benefit stuff, specifically in Appalachia. So, you mm-hmm. know, Virginia, West Virginia, East Kentucky, uh, all those places. We need to sort of think about this, I think, in a broader context. And uh, really, really, sh- you know, a lot of credit to um, – the Arts Fuse's um, sort of preeminent film scholar and film critic, Gerald Perry, who wrote a piece, uh, I guess it's about a week ago now, called um, My Blackface Confession. Gerald Perry, you've been reading his stuff in the Fuse for a very long time. I'm sure it's probably a little bit of a shock or surprise to hear that he would write a piece like this, and I'm sorry that we don't have him on right now, uh, uh, but he defends himself, it doesn't defend himself, he he explains the situation that that he was in, and I think the way that shows the difference between what happened with Gerald Perry and the difference between the difference between an adult making this decision and what happened to Gerald Perry, because he was a child who participated 
in a blackface performance. And this, if you go back and listen to the Trillbillies episode, you realize that this was a very common practice for school children to be used in to, to do performances in blackface in, you know, very public, very common sort of settings in order to do things like have fundraisers or a normal school play or something like that. And this is in the, the, the mid to, to late 20th century that this was going on. So I encourage you to listen to that episode and get a little bit of the, the background there. But so in, in Gerald Perry's own, own words here, he was 11 years old and he says, this dreadful memory had been closeted forever until I was outed at the 50th reunion of the 1960 graduating class of Columbia's Dreher High School. I ventured there from my People's Republic of Cambridge bubble, having moved north for college and staying north, into a sea of white-haired Republicans, most of whom still lived in Columbia. So that's um, South Carolina. But one more liberal classmate, who now owns a farm in the Midwest, came up to me and said, Do you remember wearing blackface in junior high? And Gerald writes, Gulp, do I ever? And he goes on to describe the, uh, the kind of sketch that he did, and I'm not going to do that right now. And what he says uh, after that is that he says, With that, we shuffled off stage to laughter and applause from the appreciative white junior high audience, students, teachers, administrators, the whole community, you know, in on it. I surely knew better than to participate. My parents were immigrant Jews from Europe, and my father especially lectured me against holding any racial prejudices. He headed the biology department at two black colleges, Benedict College and Allen University. At our home there, we dared break the color line, as African-American colleagues of my father were invited over for dinner. So why didn't I resist putting on blackface? I and my brother were just kids and under a lot of psychological pressure because of where our father taught. Anytime we told a white adult, parents of our friends, they would recoil in disgust. Some children were not allowed to play with us. A house we wished to buy fell through when the owner found out my father was at a black university. Did I try to fit in at my segregated school, betraying my father and his values to be a popular white boy? This I don't remember at all. I assume my South Carolina teachers set this talent show up, found the racist minstrel show routine, cast me, and directed me, a vulnerable 11-year-old. But analogous to some survivors of sexual abuse, I can't help feeling complicit in this ignominious, scarring moment of my life. I'm truly, truly sorry. So, I'm not really sure what I want to say about this. Well, I do. I mean, I, I made a comment on the article. Um, right. Which is to emphasize the fact that actually I would say that writing a piece like this and um, talking about this experience in one's life is actually a really progressive move. And I, I applaud the bravery that it takes to do that. Um, you know, no, no, nobody wants to think of themselves as racists, right? Even people who are maybe closer to the obvious racism uh, that you can think of would probably not want to think of themselves as racists. I, I've definitely seen people say that. I'm not racist, but, and then we'll say something that's pretty horrible. Yeah, it's that but, you know. It's always the but. <laughs> it's a, yeah. And and so I think for me, and I've definitely, I mean, you know, uh, looking back on uh, stuff I've said in my 20s or in my high school era or whatever, I've definitely regretted lots of things I've said that were uh, racist or sexist or, or could be considered that way, whatever. And I think the best way to approach these things is not this gotcha culture holier than thou aha you said something bad you're a terrible person it's the sense that like we're all trying to learn from our mistakes we're all trying to muddle through this life and i mean everyone has 
um, ignorance and, and blind spots and prejudices that they're not aware of. And, you know, you live, you learn. And I think what's important here is not to make it so that it's this, um, you know, snatch and grab moment, but to say, okay, here's stuff that I've done that I really regret. And by airing that, you take the, the brave step of admitting something that's really embar- embarrassing and that hurts you personally, you know, that you, that you, that causes you a certain amount of pain. And then to say, okay, well, like it's there. And now since I know that it's, it's, it's out there, I can do better at, you know, thinking differently and encouraging others to do so. And of course he was a child. And I, I think we should, we should stress that. It makes that. a big yeah, difference. It, it does make a big difference. It's, it's even more important that he did this looking back on what he did as a child. Cause he says that he knew better, but of course, as a child, you know, there's oftentimes where you know better and you do the wrong thing. And in this case, it's more indicative of having grown up in, the, in, a, in a racist society. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's a child who, whose family understands and recognizes being different, oppression, breaks the color line. And yet there's this pressure of conformity still. And he, mm-hmm. he, doesn't, he doesn't necessarily come out to say that he did do that or that he remembered making the conscious decision to fit in. As, as white as opposed to, you know, even, you know, Jewish or immigrant or friend of, you know, family that's friend, friendly to um, black families or a professor that wor- works in a black institution. Right. Um, and so then what I think we need to do is look at what happened with, with Gerald's story and look at the context and look at the society that he was raised in and think about the structural issues there and then similar situation you know just you know not not too far away in virginia of course you know any south carolinian would probably kill me for saying anything similar to south carolina to virginia and then there's Uh, a sense of like oh you're going to judge us from your liberal bubble like jerry wisely points out right and it's easier in the northeast and the liberal northeast to be all like oh my god i can't believe how backwards these other people are and so on and you know but of course we know that segregation is even more uh Alive and well in the north. In the north, and and, and you know, has they, always they, has been. They didn't have the laws necessarily on the books in the same way as like Jim Crow did, but mm-hmm. you know, it was it was very important that neighborhoods were segregated. Mm-hmm. Boston rioted, killed people. You know, violence erupted here when when we did busing, mm-hmm. and then it happened in cities all over the north. You know? and there's always a corner where you shove the people of color so they're not around the nice, right? Educated white liberals, and it's a terrible thing in Boston's history. And so it's not. I I would say that it's important to not hold yourself above other places right so that was in the fuse not too long ago shows that you know we're critical of ourselves mm-hmm. not just of and of, i would argue that's the, the progress that's the progressive step you know i mean like Be critical of yourself progressive conservative not progressive it's just the right thing to I do. Just, I don't, right I, yeah, I no, don't, no, yeah. but i mean like it's it's good politically and it's also to progress i don't even mean that yeah, i don't think jerry's doing this to be political <laughs> yeah. no but, yeah. i think it is i think it's to say look like i've been a part of something that i would really regret it that was like pure pressure and that is a you know a statement on the kinds of ways that you feel more not comfortable peer doing pressure. stuff like that not, well not so much peer pressure even you know institutional pressure mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like that's that's even that's even worse than peer pressure i think you know it's it's yeah the superstructure it's the ideology of the world in which he's growing up in forcing itself onto him in a way that he knows is wrong but he doesn't feel like he has the agency to do anything about it sure so that's that that i think is a very telling thing and 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 it and it matches up well with what the article from the mountain eagle uh that gets read on the trailbillies uh uh episode that i that i mentioned uh talks about as well that this was 
routine, as Jerry says. Right, and it's the routineness. My girlfriend pointed this out about the um, uh, the yearbook blackface pictures. It's not just the idiot who decides he's going to like wear a clan outfit in a yearbook or do blackface in a yearbook. That's a problem in and of itself, of course. But it's also the guy who sees the picture and goes, huh, huh, awesome, let's put yeah. this in the magazine, this is hilarious. And then the guy who signs off on that, and the guy who signs off on that, and it's the infrastructure around it. And let's not forget that blackface is very common in the North as well. Sure. And We all remember that episode of Mad Men when they do a Derby Day and uh, Roger Sterling puts shoe polish on his face. Oh no, he doesn't put the shoe polish on, he says, I do this at home with shoe polish. And uh, and my wife loves it, and it's this it's this great little moment where everybody goes like, ah, oh, well that's racist, Roger, but they don't say anything. Mm-hmm. But he still does the minstrel song, uh, you know, in, in an exaggerated um, uh, manner. And so uh, we can't forget that that blackface was also very common in the north. Sure, and wherever somebody wants to act out and push buttons, happened in in Oklahoma. Some Oklahoma teenagers did that. Not necessarily quite the South, but, I mean, it's that sense of just of racism, of just a privilege in the sense that, like, we're going to be able to get away with this. We think it's really funny at someone else's expense, you know? All right, so that's enough of us bumbling through, uh, <laughs> through wokeness. And uh, another piece that we want to touch on real closely comes from Peg Aloy, who uh, uh, does a lot of film and TV from her uh, series Watch Closely. And she covers the new season of True Detective, which I'm not watching yet, but I've seen the first two seasons. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching it, actually. And Matt's watching it, so he's going to tell us what uh, Peg says and uh, what he thinks about it. So this is Peg writing. The title is the title of the piece is um, – this is from her column for TV, by the way. Anybody out there who's interested in some, inter- in some TV uh, criticism – her watch closely column is is really interesting stuff. She talks about True Detective. Its uh, title is Mysteries of Mind and Soul, and she's talking about sort of the previous series, uh, this previous two seasons, which Lucas pointed out, where um, there's that sense of of playing with time, playing with narrative unity, and jumping between the past and present in fluid and unusual ways. I've heard this season as a return to form, mm-hmm. which is yeah. code for. Du- doesn't suck as much as the second season. Yes. First season I thought was really interesting, <laughs> a real revelation. Second season was garbage. And this season they were like, uh, let's go back to the interesting stuff we were doing in the first season, which was a wise choice. I want um, more Yellow King. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And um, there's some of the themes that are still there. There's sort of the, the lonely, suffering, uh, stoic man in a, in a crappy world, which is kind of what we got in season one as well. There's less metaphysics in season three but there's definitely a lot of time loop and um kind of existential questioning um this is peg writing the fluid timeline formula returns with true detectives third season which centers on two partners whose work solving a crime reunites them more than once over the course of 35 years beginning in 1980 in season one the partners have a falling out they only reunite when new evidence suggests the initial arrests and convictions let the real killer go free In season three, so much time goes by that the partners end up having no contact for almost a quarter century. The investigation that defined their careers remains mired in mystery. Previous convictions are gradually exposed as dubious, and people connected to the case turn up dead under unexplained circumstances. Then, a television documentary producer comes to town to ask a few questions and reopen old wounds. Marshala Ali, the uh, Mahershala, Mahershala, sorry, uh, from Moonlight, is Wayne Hayes. And Stephen Dorff is Roland West. They're already partners in a small town near Fayetteville, Arkansas, when the story begins in 1980. 
They're comfortable enough on the job to make jokes to each other about hoping to find suspects to beat up on if they have a slow night. When a local man calls to report his two children missing, Wayne uses his tracker skills he learned in Vietnam to locate one of them, a 10-year-old boy found in a ritualized murder scene. Themes stemming from occult crime return from the first season, as do other issues involving police corruption, rural racism, and wrongful incarceration. So there's the sense that, yeah, we're going back to this, to a similar ground to season one. I do think they change, but but a lot of the, the same tropes are there. Um, and I think what's interesting about season three is that instead of in season one, it's all about time and it's very philosophical and it's very abstract. Season three, it's more about memory. Time is a flat circle, by the way. Yes. <laughs> and it's that sense of, like, in season three, it's about memory. And it's about repressed memory. Mahershala's character is much older. Yes. There's a, well, yeah. one of the, one of those, like, plot strands is, yeah, him yeah. as a much older man, yeah. And how he's kind of looking back over his life and how he can't remember a lot of the things that happened in the past. And But there's also a sense that he's haunted by the memories that come back, that he's not super thrilled to have to deal with and by the middle of the season i was starting to check out i was starting to think this is getting a little too muddled a little too uh caught up in its own um metaphysical ambitions there is a sense in i think each of the true detective seasons that it is a little bit too far up its own ass and and i think that's a valid criticism right i think Season two doesn't even get off the ground far enough mm-hmm. to even really care about it being right. too Season far two is a yeah. mess in any number of yeah. ways. Season one, definitely, I think halfway through, you gotta go like okay, it gets a little yeah. up its own ass. But then it does get exciting again towards the end. And and, and the next this Sunday's episode will be the conclusion, I believe. Nah. So I'm really excited now because so we're actually have, getting somewhere. Yeah, you'll 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 probably have watched the last episode by the time you hear this podcast. So. Yeah, which is going to be interesting because yeah, if it doesn't tie everything together, I will be really annoyed. And if it doesn't provide the emotional kick I need, then I'll be really annoyed. But there's definitely some moments where it started to kind of redeem itself. The, the, the acting is superb. The, the way these two actors play off of each other. There's a scene where they reunite after years. That's when the, which Peg mentions that 25 years go by and then they, they reunite together as old men. That's a very, very, very powerful scene. And it's extremely well acted. That's really kind of the draw, I think, of the true detective formula. Because uh, McConaughey and um, Woody, Woody Harrelson are absolutely fantastic together. Yeah, like really, they really are. and 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 so it's like the reinvention of like the buddy cop film mm-hmm. where they're like really not buddies. <laughs> yeah, and 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 uh, and then you get a foursome in season two, which is a, a kind of a weird one, and um, and then you come back to I guess the original formula, which is the buddy cop, but but with a lot more. Um, they're actually friends in season three. Okay. They genuinely are friends, and they really do like appreciate each other. They're very subtle about it, but they are genuinely friends, and they and they they have a, a real rapport. But they handle race a lot more complexly in season three, which I thought was pretty well done. It's just I can only care so much about the sad, brooding, lonely man in a world of gone to hell, to the point where I'm like, okay, we'll just go shuffle off somewhere and be sad. Right. So that's the other thing is that. It's pretty timeless that, you know, you've got sad, lonely, fucked up, you know, people. Usually I love that stuff. Yeah. But there's also a lot of that, you know, like you could watch happens you all could watch, the time. You could watch the noir stuff and, and get and get tons of that, too. Oh, a little yeah. bit more humor and kind of detective like, shows yeah. playing off the title. There's there's tons of detective shows about that. 
The women, there's actually women in season three, which is very nice. Well, you had a lead woman character in season two in Rachel McAdams. There was, there was. There was kind of a couple of women characters in season one, but I felt they were kind of minor. They were mostly breasts. Yes. And it was mostly Woody Harrelson. Uh, and the, his general predisposition to enjoying said breasts. <laughs> that he was not married to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, but in season three, there's actually a character, a woman character who's pretty well-rounded, pretty strong, which is good to see. Less mysticism in season three, more haunting. And so I really, honestly, this is a show I start, I picked up on because I was interested in season three. I think some critics have kind of decided it's sagged and, and, and lost their interest. It's picked up the last two episodes, but whether or not Sunday's episode will uh, tie it all together, I think, will be my final judgment on this season. This is kind of a funny thing because it's a miniseries, right? Each season is standalone. Right. And if you sag in the middle of a standalone 10-episode season or, or eight-episode season or whatever it is, I don't know how many it is, like, that's bad. Yeah. Like, that's that, that indicates that there's something really, really wrong with the conceptual stuff going on in the background of these shows. Mm-hmm. And so then if it's just about the dynamic of, you know, a couple of actors – which can be thrilling and entertaining, but if if the story is not really driving, or if the character, or if that's not enough, because you know Mahersha Ali, unbelievable actor, Woody Harrelson, yeah. Matthew McConaughey, great They're actors, top you levels, know. yeah. Colin Farrell did a great job as a sad, lonely, messed up man, an underrated actor in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think so. I mean, but his best film is probably uh, in Bruges. Yeah, you know what? Actually, probably in Bruges. Um, I was going to say New World. <laughs> but he doesn't have to act in that. Hated that. He movie. doesn't have to act in New World. <laughs> I, was like, I, was gonna, I was gonna make a joke about how he just stands there and and watches Pocahontas dance in the in the in yeah. the, in, in, yeah. in the field, and he goes grass, sun, wind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I don't know how to explain my own emotions until Lucas does it for me. Grass, wind, love. Well, you said you said enough when you said you know uh, uh, you're gonna feel pissed off if uh, you weren't emotionally fulfilled by the end of the uh, the season, and uh, obviously that means I'm not enough. Well, emotionally (laughs) fulfilled in the universe of True Detective. Oh, okay, okay. My interactions (laughs) with you, live on tape or otherwise, are generally marginally emotional, and sometimes fulfilling. And in light of that, uh, emotional conversations, <laughs> dialogue, we'll bring on uh, Professor Lloyd Schwartz now. Uh, really, really amazing guy. We're so glad that he stopped by. And someone we've shared uh, hallways and elevators with at various times. That's true. So, so if you ever saw this guy in real life, if you live in the area, you'll recognize him as that guy that you see. And if you're ever wondering who he was, this is who he is. <laughs> and um, he's the poet laureate of Somerville. So if you live in Somerville... You like poetry. He is our poet laureate. Right. So you can talk to him. <laughs> I'm he's pretty your sure. He's a poet representative. Yes. And uh, and he's a teacher at UMass Boston, right. which both myself and Lucas have attended. Yeah, we spent we spent uh, a few. So we share the elevators in the hallways. Yeah. So that's the thing. Times. So we 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 we'd, we'd walk by this guy. You know, we knew we knew he was in the English department. Knew he was a poet. Uh, but he's got an he's got a, a few of really amazing stories. He talks a lot about his uh, craft, his his approach to poetry. Um, he reads a few things and stick around for the uh, the Richard Nixon poems. At and the, the poetry of Richard Nixon re-edited from various tapes and things. Matt and I are going to go uh, outrage about Venezuela while you listen to that. 
So we're joined now by the Pulitzer Prize winner, Lloyd Schwartz. Uh, I pulled this. I pulled this bio from the Poetry Foundation. So Lloyd, please uh, oh, let wow. me know if it, if anything is out of date. Poetry or, Foundation or, it has to be accurate. It has to be right. Yeah, it's 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 the Wikipedia of, of poetry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what it says. Okay. So this will be a learning experience for all of us. Okay. <laughs> uh, Born in Brooklyn. How are we doing so far? So far, so good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, poet and Elizabeth Bishop scholar Lloyd Schwartz earned a BA at Queens College, uh, CCNY, and a PhD. Well, CUNY. CU, okay, so Queens CCNY College. CCNY is City College, and right. Queens College is Queens College, and they're both part of the City University, University. of New York. Okay. So I, I, I can tell you, and I hope you are dripping with envy <laughs> that my entire college education cost me eighty dollars. Yeah, I don't think envy is the word that, that people of our generation yeah. are going to be. Envy applies certainly, yeah. but not yeah. limited yeah. to yeah. not limited. Yeah. And we're talking the entire college education. Four years. Right. Ten dollars a semester. That's amazing. Wow. And that was living in New York City yeah. and school was free. Mm-hmm. And it was a ten dollar fee plus books of of yeah. course. And this was when to when? This was I was an undergraduate from nineteen fifty eight to nineteen sixty two. Wow. And then mm. that didn't last forever. Mm-hmm. But um it was a f- fantastic thing for New York City residents who you didn't have to be a genius to get in, you had to have a good average, you know, in, in right. high school. But it was not impossible to get in. And there were amazing teachers. And Queens was the smallest of the city college campuses. And so we had the most, I, I would say we probably had, um, of all the students who were in the city college system, we had the closest relationship with our teachers hmm. because the classes were small. And it was amazing. Wow. It was amazing. Were you from Queens? I was living in Queens, yeah. yeah although my... Did you just hear me? I said born in Brooklyn. Well, no, but you could be born. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Well, yeah, I was yeah, born yeah. in right, Brooklyn, right. and then uh, I we, we moved to Queens. Okay. Uh, and... Um, my closest friends in college were, uh, one was from Brooklyn and one was from Bronx. Mm. And so, you know, we would either meet on campus or we would meet in Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we would all, you know, go home in our completely opposite directions. Who were your teachers at uh, Queens College? I'd be curious about that. Well, the teacher who was um, my, my real mentor... Uh, was a woman named Mary Doyle Curran, who some several years after I was her student, left New York and moved to Boston and was came to UMass Boston hmm. to teach at UMass Boston. And there is something to this day called the Mary Doyle Curran Creative Writing Scholarship because it was her money that she had left uh, in her will to um, the English department at, at, at UMass. She was an amazing character. She was a great teacher. Her, her specialty was Irish literature. 
uh, Yates and Joyce. Um, I did my undergraduate honors thesis on Yates and on language, on kind of ambiguous language, double, you know, double language that had double meanings. Sure. Uh, and especially double emotional meanings. I was always confused by the line, what's the one where uh, he's talking about the sisters that he visits with and won a gazelle? What does that mean? That she was incredibly beautiful, like a, like a deer leaping through the woods. Is that all? Yeah. Like wow. a gazelle. Yeah. But like he doesn't say like a gazelle. Right. Oh, yeah, he says yeah. one a gazelle. You know, he's, very, he's very because, direct. You know? Because yeah. that's a metaphor, not yeah. a simile. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and I love that line. And, yeah. and, uh, Do you know which poem that's from? I can't remember the name of it. Oh, God. You know, 20 years ago yeah. I did. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Probably five years ago I did when I was studying yeah. Irish literature in yeah. Trinity. But um, it's, uh, yeah, no, it's, Yeats so, is, um, his, uh, his uh, uh, obfuscations are quite uh, uh, maddening yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I really loved him, and I was going to do my PhD thesis on Yeats, and I did work on or not work on my Yeats thesis for about seven years, and um, I had I was assigned an advisor who. Um, you know, just an admirable person, and a and a and knew everything about Yeats, and wasn't really interested in the aspect of Yeats that I was interested in, and it was like beating my head against a wall, and I just stopped, and uh, I was teaching at Boston State College. Do you know Boston State College? That's what UMass Boston sure, that's used what, to be, right? I think what UMass Boston Not or, exactly. Not it was exactly. a teacher college, right? It was. Yeah. It was the oldest public college in Massachusetts. And we had a governor named Ed King who thought, hmm, I might be, might look like a good thing to shut this school down. And it was an inner city school. It's where Mass College of Art is now on Huntington Avenue. And it was really a kind of amazing place. And it was an amazing place for students who literally had to be downtown as far as their families were concerned, as far as their jobs were concerned, who couldn't afford UMass Boston because it was a state college, so it was... It was cheaper, and needless to say, the faculty was paid less, considerably less. Right. And um, this was the school was shut down hmm. uh, because it there was some claim that it was losing money, which it wasn't. And um, I could see the handwriting on the wall. We all knew this was going to happen. And I had not finished my PhD thesis. And I didn't think I could, given the circumstances of what I had to do. And I, and I, I thought, you know, this was the mid-70s. There weren't a lot of jobs. There weren't a lot of teaching jobs. I thought, hmm, 
waiter, <laughs> taxi driver, <laughs> sure. pre-Uber, pre-Uber. Right. And I thought I knew people who were just giving up on getting a PhD. And I couldn't bear that. And I thought if I was going to have to leave the academic world, I was going to leave it with a PhD. And, and, and I thought, but I can't write about Yeats because this, this is an impossible situation. Can I ask who your your advisor was? I don't want to. I don't want to say. Okay. Just, yeah. I mean, it was a famous. Uh, Is it Irish like literature the school. guy that brought like Irish literature studies to America for the most part? No. No. I don't. Think I can't so. remember whose name I'm thinking of. But well, I would. Re- I just assume yeah. not mention his his name. I mean, he was a really great figure, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and he looked like God. I mean, it was really <laughs> amazing with this flowing white hair and. And he was. Um, this is the PhD teacher, you're saying. Yes, yeah, yeah. With, with my advisor. Okay, yeah. yeah. And um, and I thought I, I I can't go on. I can't have these endless fights with him about, you know, he, he really wanted me to do what he wanted my thesis to be mm-hmm. about, and I wanted to do what my I wanted my thesis to be about, and I really just gave up. And I thought, what? Who could I write about if I was not going to write about Yeats? And by that time, I had become really friends with Elizabeth Bishop. And um, I called her up and I said, Elizabeth, I'm thinking of changing my thesis topic. How would you feel if I wrote my thesis about you? And she was someone who was, she never talked about her poetry. She didn't like her, if you were a friend of hers, you became her friend because you could talk about other things besides Mm -hmm. her poetry. Much as I loved her poetry, and the person who introduced me to her poetry was Mary Doyle Curran. The first Elizabeth Bishop poem I ever heard, Mary Curran was reading it. Um, and I had loved Bishop's work, and we, when she came to Harvard in 1970, and it was really, you know, and I knew people who knew her, and, and I was introduced to her, and all I could think of was, all I could talk to her about was her poems, and that was the the one thing I couldn't talk to her about if we were going to you know, become that's an interesting thing. Because a lot of poets, in my experience, myself included, love talking about their writing and their ideas and all that. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But not her. You could talk about anything, just about, and accept her work. And she, and when I suggested, you know, that I would be writing about her, I knew I'd have to get her permission, because. Um, because I, I, I thought she would feel uncomfortable with someone she knew writing about her. And her first response, this was still that phone conversation, was, oh, but there isn't anything to write about. 
And I said, well, why don't you let me worry about that? Right, sure. And then she said, and, and I thought this was the really interesting thing, and I've thought about this so many times at, in years after that. She said, but would you finish it? Would you finish your dissertation? And I, I had a promise that I would finish my dissertation because here I was, a, you know, a 10th year graduate student having worked on a Gates thesis for seven years and not finish it. Sure. And she said, would you finish it? And I said, if I were working on, if I were writing about you, I would finish it. And I wanted to finish it because if I, as I said before, it, 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 I thought I was gonna have to quit teaching because there weren't any jobs. And that I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be a waiter with a PhD, what, <laughs> uh, what, or, or whatever. There are a lot of them now, still. So yeah, yeah oh, I, I know, I know. There were, there were then. Our host uh, is one of these. Not uh -huh. a PhD. No, but, and, but and I'm not a waiter. Degrees. I'm not a waiter anymore. That's true. I was That's a waiter. Was where, a waiter. Were you, where, were you wa where were you a waiter? Uh, it was, um, it was, um, like a brand new restaurant, uh, uh, kind of just on the edge of the. Financial district uh, downtown. Oh, downtown. Um, so it's not a it's not a well known place or a place that of any. It's not Avon Louis or anything, you know. So. I see. I see. <laughs> Something worth mentioning. Um, <laughs> at any rate, so yeah, yeah, I promised that I would finish it, and she said, "Would you like to meet with me for the express purpose of?" my answering any questions that you might have and I've, I've died and gone to heaven <laughs> that I could actually she was actually giving me an opportunity to speak to her about her poems mm. and wow and she did and we met regularly and I you know and we were friends so we saw each other socially but we had these meetings specifically in which she would answer my questions or not. And if it had anything to do with the circumstances of writing a poem or who it was about or anything like that, she was fine with. And anything that had to do with interpretation, she refused to answer. And I can remember a line that I just, I didn't understand the line. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is my chance. Yeah. And I would, and I asked her, you know, well, what is this? I, I can't figure out the syntax of this line. And her answer was, but it's obvious. And that was the end of that conversation. I still don't know what that line means. <laughs> um, Poets are infuriating like that, I think, sometimes. Yeah, yeah sometimes. This is when she's living in, in Boston again, right? She's, Towards the end of her life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. By the water, right? By, um, on the seaport, She sort of? was, I'm, I can't remember. I think she was still living in Harvard Square, and then she moved to, then she moved to, uh, yeah, to Lewis Wharf. Okay. And she was, they, they had, you know, this was this old building mm -hmm. that was falling apart, and this brilliant architect decided, you know, who, who, what you know no one's going to want to live in this part of the world you know off 
you know, in the, in the North End, near the water. Who'd want to live <laughs> yeah, right. with a view of Boston Harbor? Right. And he developed this building, and she was one of the first owners of a condo in that building. And all of her friends thought she was crazy because she was paying $69,000 for this condominium mm-hmm. on the Boston waterfront in the, in the North End. So you did finish your PhD. I did. And you got it and received it. And yeah. uh, and you did not go on to be a waiter. If you I did, didn't. for it wouldn't have been for long. But no, you didn't I yet. didn't. I didn't. I never had to. Um, I uh, the you Boston State was in fact closed down, but it turned out that everyone who taught at Boston State who had a PhD. Uh, this was I had no idea this was going to happen. But everyone with a PhD was eligible to apply to UMass Boston. The newspapers called it a merger. It was not a merger. Everyone from Boston State was let go. Uh, The people with PhDs could interview for a job at UMass Boston. The people without PhDs and and Boston State College didn't require a PhD, it, you know, it was a teaching school, and there were wonderful teachers there, but they didn't, they had, some of them had master's degrees, most of them had master's degrees, but not PhDs. And they were, they, the state kept their promise, they were all given jobs somewhere. But here were people who had been teaching for, you know, 30 years, 40 years, who lived in Boston or Revere or Winthrop and were getting farmed out to Framingham or, you know, Fitchburg Mm -hmm. uh, to teach freshman comp. And uh, it was really, it was horrible. Mm. And, you know. This was the 70s? This was the merger. Yeah, it was 1982. And and to this day, you can buy uh, Boston City College uh, what was it? What was it? Boston College, Boston, Boston State, State College. Boston yeah. State College. You can buy Boston State College T-shirts in the UMass Boston Bookstore. Can you really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow! I've seen them. Yeah. Wow! The green and yellow, I believe, were the, uh, the uh-huh. school colors. <laughs> yeah. Well, it that's was just whitewashing. I've history. seen that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I just thought it was. I just thought it was the previous name for so the did same I. school. That's, that's what I was too. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Wiki- like, I think like Wikipedia articles would ever even reference it as that. But now, yeah. now I, I didn't but it, realize it but, was. But yeah. it was a separate school, and there were you know there were there were state colleges and mm-hmm. the university. Yeah. And there were and now most of the state colleges are. It's University of Lowell, University of Dartmouth, University right. of of, of uh, Framingham. Or UMass Lowell, UMass Dartmouth. UMass yeah, Lowell, yeah, yeah. UMass Dartmouth, UMass Framingham. Uh, there, and there, were, there were, were a number of them. There were like nine or ten. Mm-hmm. And the oldest one, which was a, this, it was this um, teacher's college going back to the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the one that was, that was shut down. Is there any, um, if anybody reads the Globe, you, you would know <laughs> that UMass Boston is not doing great these days. And you did eventually become the Frederick S. Troy Professor of English at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. This is, this is true. Okay. This Are you true. still the Frederick S. I Troy? Am. Okay. I am. <laughs> I am. And what was, what was really nice about being awarded that, it's, it, it's a chair, 
but it's it's a chair that has nothing except the chair. <laughs> there, is, there is no, you know, stipend that goes with it the way there are in some places. Mm. But I was very honored, and I knew Frederick S. Troy, wow. Barney Troy, and he was a friend of Mary Doyle Currens, of my teacher, and they lived next door to each other on Beacon Hill, and I, he was someone I had dinner with and with Mary, and I admired him tremendously, and he had been a, oh, he was on, on the board of trustees of the university, and he was an, a really good guy. Mm. And, uh, and so to be, to be the Frederick S. Troy professor, Barney Troy, uh, of English was really, it really meant something to me. And, um, and I, 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 I take that honor very seriously. I'm very, I'm very happy to be that, to be that named professor. Be nice if it, <laughs> there was something else yeah, that right. went along with it, but but still, how many how many people can can say that? <laughs> right. I'm curious about so this is um, so that's the that's kind of the 70s ish, and then going into kind of the early yeah. 80s. So then, did you consider yourself a poet most of your life prior to that, or was it something that came in later? Where, where did your awakening awakening to poetry come through? Yeah. Well. That happened in my senior year of high school. And I was not someone who was especially interested in poetry. My mother would read poems to me, and I thought they were nice. They didn't especially mean anything to me, but I, I liked the sound of it and language and all that. Um, but I had an amazing English teacher in my senior year of high school. He was a real character. He reminded me of Groucho Marx, and I wasn't the only person he reminded of Groucho Marx because my English teacher's son wrote a biography of Groucho Marx. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. So this was someone who would do anything to get the students excited about poetry, and I can picture him to this day. I mean, that was a long time ago, 19... 58. I was a senior in high school. I can picture Mr. Canfer with his mustache and his glasses leaping on onto his desk and reciting from memory was this a dagger that I see before me, Macbeth's big mm -hmm. speech. And Lady Whoa. Macbeth's big speech. No, 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 oh, no, no. I think no, it's Lady Macbeth. Macbeth, right? Yeah, it's, it's Macbeth. Is that a dagger I see? Yeah. Oh, okay. No, he's having his fantasy about oh, killing yeah. the, killing the king. Right. And yeah. and he recites that. This is your high school and teacher jumps up on table and right. is like, and you know, not a young man, right? Gray haired and a bushy mustache and glasses, and then and then talking about Keats and talking about Robert Frost. And I, and I, I thought, I, this is really something I have to be part of. I, I love this. Poems mean something. Um, they're not only beautiful, and it's not only beautiful language, but they're about things. We read Frost's Fire and Ice. Do you know that? Mm -hmm. 
Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. And this is really about something. I, I didn't know poems could be about anything. And I wanted to write poems. And I, I you know, I, I didn't know what the first thing about writing a poem. But that's what I, that's what I suddenly wanted to do. Um, kind I of like a vocation, almost. Well, something happened. Yeah. Something happened. And then... I really thought I, I was going to be an actor. And I had been involved in children's theater and I had acted in high school. And, and I, I, I took, you know, acting lessons for, for kids. And I thought I, that I, I might have a, some talent for that. And I, I, I really, and I, and I love doing that. And that's what I thought would, would happen to me. And first week of college, I, you know, signed up for my courses and I went to the drama club. And I couldn't stand these people in the drama club. <laughs> for me, for me, acting, especially in, when I was a high school student, acting kind of saved my life. I went to a very tough school. I don't mean academically tough. I mean, it was a really, these were tough kids who went to this school. And I was not a brilliant high school student, but I got, a, I got better grades than they did. <laughs> and they hated me. And the the idea of any kind of boy who could who could eke out a ninety average, there was like a bulletin board in my high school in the front hallway, and on one side it was all the boys who had a ninety average or above. Oh God! And there were three of us, and on the other side, on the other wall, were all the girls who had 90 averages or above. And there were like mimeograph pages, <laughs> pages and pages, you know, hundreds of, right. of young girls uh, who were doing well. And I, and I wasn't a great student, but these tough guys really, they, they knew who I was. Yeah. 50s and queens, sure. Yeah. And I... Because I was an actor, I was completely willing, and still am, to make a fool of myself in public. And I would do, you know, I would be in a play in the, you know, in the, you know, in the in the school auditorium that everyone would have to go to, or I did pantomimes where I was the only one on stage and just not, you know, just silent skits and that were always kind of funny i was a burglar in one in one skit and these tough kids thought hey this guy's really funny you know he's not just an an, an egghead he you know he's he's a regular guy he's willing to make you know he he likes it when we laugh at him and that kind of saved my life, you know. And I was, I was actually, I was very young when I was in high school. It was a social catastrophe. But um, 
A lot of comedians say things. I like was just going to say it's a wonder yeah. you didn't end up a comedian. Right. Well, <laughs> right, 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 right. yeah. I mean, I suppose that could have happened. Yeah. I don't think you know. I I don't think I was verbally very funny because I was very shy about speaking. Mm-hmm. But I I was absolutely willing to say anything that was scripted or do something that didn't require words. You use dialogue a lot in your poetry. Yeah. Is there a connection to your early yes. desires to being an actor yeah. to the way that you will? Do an entire poem in dialogue? Or? Yes, yes. Thank you for noticing that. And I, I, I do some research. Before this <laughs> <program>. <laughs> no, great, good, good. I, I walked like past you for four years in, in college. Right. And never even read. Right. <laughs> so now we've thoroughly no, vetted. Now we like that. Well, I'll t- I'll t- I'll tell you, I'll tell you that story. Um. So the the first story is that I went to the drama club. In college, and what I one of the things that I loved about acting, about being a student actor, is that there was such a community, and there was a sense that well I could be the prop man or I could have, if not a lead, you know, a featured role in in one of the school plays. There's always a collective endeavor to absolutely, and and that. That was why I was an only child. This was my, this was really my family. And I go to this meeting of the drama club and I see every one of these kids in the drama club who thinks he or, or she is a star. And I, I found it repellent. I actually never went back to the drama club I never saw a play produced by the kids. I mean, and maybe they were really talented. Maybe they were really good. But boy, I didn't want to have anything to do with them. And I went to a meeting of the literary magazine instead, and I got, and I thought these these people who were really not full of themselves were really brilliant. There were some wonderful, wonderful writers um, it's a woman named Tony Cade. She became Tony Cade Bambara. She was the editor of the school magazine. I think she was a senior, maybe a junior. Playwright? Tony Cade Bambara? I feel like playwright. Fiction, fiction oh, writer, okay. but possibly, I think she might have written some plays okay. also. Um, she was, I thought she was sort of dazzlingly beautiful and so articulate and just such an amazing writer and she you know really went on to have a, a, a an important career she died too young but she was really something and it was a privilege to be in a room with her where there where everyone is discussing whether we should publish this short story or whether we should publish this poem and I stuck with the magazine, and I became, in my senior year, I was the poetry editor of the magazine, and I was very serious about that. And in, in fact, when I came to Harvard to go to graduate school, I, I knew that Robert Lowell was here. And I, before he had his, his sort of public office hours, he had conventional office hours, but you could... You, especially if you were a, a 
graduate student, a Harvard student of any sort, you could go to sign up for Lowell's office hours and bring him a poem, and he would talk about it. And I brought him my best undergraduate poem, and he say he exactly ripped it to shreds <laughs> but he was he made me aware of its limitations sure he wouldn't have been doing <laughs> right. you any favors to do otherwise right right absolutely right. not right so um uh so I, I i was i was committing myself to to poetry and i knew i was going to be doing my yates thesis and i had written all these term papers on you know all the poets that I that I loved and um, Lowell was was I didn't write about Lowell but I I uh, Mary Doyle Curran introduced me to the poems of Robert Lowell as well and um, so I um, did not do any acting in college and I did not do any acting when I was taking courses in graduate school. But, and I was, I was a poor kid from, from New York City, uh, $80 for my whole college education. I had a scholarship, I had a Woodrow Wilson scholarship to graduate school, to, to Harvard, that paid my tuition and $1,500. And I was living on fifteen hundred dollars a year, and I was m living on fifteen hundred dollars a year. But I also loved theater, and there were these incredibly talented theater people who were mostly undergraduates at Harvard, or else there were a couple of people from MIT who over, you know, came came in, and and you've heard of them. Tommy Lee Jones, Stocker Channing, um, John Lithgow, uh, James Woods. James Woods was a, a, an MIT student, but he was doing acting with Har at Harvard. So that means I, you're there at the same time as Al Gore. I was, <laughs> but I didn't. I knew Tommy Lee Jones. They were roommates. I know. Right? Yeah, they okay. were, uh, but I didn't know him. I, uh, I never met him as far as I know. Yeah, um, but here were these amazing people, right. and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to see these productions, and I discovered that there were these little um, drama reviews in the different Harvard houses, and if you reviewed, you could get in for free, and. Even for me to pay $2 to get into a show, I was living on $1,500 a year. I didn't have $2 to just... But yeah. I started writing reviews for the, for the Harvard drama reviews, and I would get free tickets and, and see these amazing actors and really profound student directors hmm. uh, who I, you know... I, I, I thought you know, this was theater at its very best. And after I passed my PhD orals, the, within a few days, one of my undergraduate two Ts, one of my students 
who had become, was already had become a friend of mine. I saw, I said, gee, this, the Harvard Dramatic Club, Harvard Summer Theater, Harvard Dramatic Club Summer Theater was having this really interesting season. They were doing a rock musical version of an Aristophanes comedy called Peace. This was right at the height of the peace movement Mm -hmm. in the sort of late 80s. They were doing a musical version of Trojan Women, Euripides' Trojan Women. They were doing a Shakespeare's Measure for Measure, which is not an easy play to do. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating play, but not an easy play My to do. My high school did that, yeah. Very ambitious. Yeah. And a Brecht, a Brecht um, play called In the Jungle of Cities. I keep bringing him up on the podcast. I'm, I'm waiting for some oh. sort of Brechtian revival. To oh, <laughs> yeah. No, well, he was great. He was great. It turns out his wife or girlfriend may have actually written a lot of what he have you heard that i've heard that yeah yeah so my student form former student and and friend she said why don't you audition you've just passed your orals you owe yourself something you 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 had ambitions to be an actor why you know, you love these people. Wouldn't you like to be involved with them? I said, yeah, I would. And um, and so I, I auditioned. I had just written a review, the, 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 the direct, one of the two directors of this summer company had just done a production of The Tempest, which I actually didn't like so much. I really admired him, but I didn't like this production of The Tempest so much, and I had written this review. And I am sure that he cast me in this rock musical (laughs) version of Aristophanes in order to humiliate Right, out of spite, I was going to say. Totally out of spite. Little did he know that you didn't mind. Yeah, that that was actually like (laughs) a favor. This was true, and I had these these bit parts, I had three parts, and they were really funny. And the, the drama critic for the Harvard Crimson reviewed this production, and the two best reviews were for Stocker Channing and me. Wow. <laughs> Not I bad. could still quote. I could still quote that review. I won't. Sure, sure. So you, <laughs> so you, you could have either gone on to be in Greece or the West Wing. Right. This is yeah. yes, right. Yeah, exactly. totally. I was gonna say exactly. And and for the next few years, um, I you know I got bigger and better parts in in each production. Mm-hmm. I grew my beard to be in, in a play because I didn't want to wear a phony beard, which changed my whole view of myself sure and um and i suddenly got to be very serious about acting again Hmm. and then i got hired by boston state college and it was mainly to teach evening classes and i had a i had a big crisis right. in my life because if I was going to be an actor 
then I couldn't take this job. But I was a serious literature student. I was a PhD student. This was before I got my PhD. Yeah. But, but I, and I sort of took the safer path. But little did I know. <laughs> but you know, I knew some of my some of my fellow actors. You know, I can tell you Tommy Lee Jones, Stocker Channing. But you've never heard of Dan Deitch, and you've never heard of a whole bunch of people who right. were just as good, who were really talented, who and just were for brilliant, reason. and couldn't get a job doing a commercial. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and for every one guy that makes it, it's a hundred right. that just just right. as talented, just as gifted, and it just right. whatever it doesn't come together. And and I thought, and I was too scared to just take that I mean you know as long as I was teaching during the day and acting at night that was fine but if I had to choose so to answer your question of 2 hours ago <laughs> um right. I took the teaching job I was teaching at night I was writing poems and Although it didn't occur to me at the time, I suddenly, I was writing all these poems about myself, you know, lyric poems about my, my suffering and my heartbreak and all of this stuff. I was doing a series of poems in, in, as, as, as if I were a different characters in Ulysses. In the that voice was, of like Blazes Boylan and Leopold. No, and it wasn't even that interesting. Oh, like a like a pastiche of you know, No, it was it was oh, my was it? soul, but as seen through the eyes of okay. Stephen Dedalus or you know. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, right. Well, anyway. Stephen Dedalus probably wouldn't write a very good poem. Yeah, right. <laughs> well that's kind of kind, 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 kind of you to say. <laughs> kind of you to say. But I got very bored pull with out, my own. Pull out your eyes, pull out your eyes. Apologize. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. But I got very bored with my own poems. And that's when I had this idea about writing in the, in the voice of someone else, in the voice of someone completely different, mm-hmm. not just to see myself as if I were Stephen Dedalus, but... Um, the first poem I tried was in the voice of not exactly a prostitute, but some something very close to that. And it was my first published, it became my first published poem, and I published it in a, in a really great magazine called The American Review, which was a paperback that came out several times a year, and they loved having at least one poet, one fiction writer in each issue for whom this was the first publication. Mm -hmm. So they were really kind of looking for some kind of original or at least interesting new voice of someone who had never been published before. And I got my poem published in in the American Review, and I got my letter, this acceptance letter, and I thought, 
who else would publish this poem? Because it was kind of, it was a little daring and it was kind of raunchy. And who else would publish it? So I said, well, give it a shot. Right. And I got my letter, my acceptance letter. Um, I called my friend who was my classmate and friend who is now just practically almost my oldest friend, Frank Bedard. And I called Frank to say, my po- Estelle's testimony just got taken by the American Review. And Frank said, Robert Lowell is here. Why don't you tell him? <laughs> <laughs> and I got to the second person who knew that I had my first published poem was Robert Lowell. It was Cal and himself. Cal himself. So, and then... I, and then I started writing all of these poems that were either monologues or dialogues. Um, and eventually I had a book of them and I was sending out a manuscript. And I'll, I'll tell you about my favorite rejection letter. This is still my favorite rejection letter. So I had submit. I had put had this book together, and I was sending it out everywhere, and just getting rejected. And um, the University of Massachusetts Press had, I think, still does have something called the Juniper Prize, and it was for the book publication, and I think a thousand bucks. It was a really good prize, and I get this letter saying, um, wasn't exactly congratulations, but it was sort of, congratulations, you were the runner-up this year (laughs) for the Juniper Prize, and I can quote, I can quote this rejection letter, because it was, it, it was thrilling, and it was this, like, managing editor of the press who was, who had sat in on the on the discussion, there were nine judges, and four of them wanted to publish my book, and five of them didn't. And the letter said, unfortunately, what grabs some people about your work repels others. That's how you know it's good. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. It was really yeah. exciting. Yeah. Much better right. than... Sorry, we are not yeah, accepting. Not a good poems. fit for we us. Like, yeah, 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 exactly, but, yeah. exactly. Right, right, and right, this right, was right. Th- was was absolutely thrilling sure. to get this rejection letter. And and um, uh, I was showing this to a friend of mine who said, "You know, I bet the next letter you get, your your book is going to be taken." And it's true, and it's true. The very next letter was an acceptance letter. And uh, Wesleyan University Press, which has now published this book. Okay. Long out of print. <laughs> right. These people, it's called. These people. Yeah. And it's a collection of monologues and dialogues. And, um, and I, had a, I had a right to all the other places that I had been applying to, mm-hmm. saying, you know, I'm sorry, I have to withdraw my book because it's got it got taken 
And I got all these nice letters, you know, congrats. We don't have to deal with you anymore. Right. Uh, congratulations. This is great. And then maybe like six months later, <laughs> I got another rejection letter from someone who obviously hadn't re- read my note mm-hmm. saying, I'm withdrawing my manuscript because my book has been taken. And, right. And, and one of these, you know, just sort of absolutely bland. Boilerplate. Boilerplate, yeah. 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 Which are always the most frustrating things to get, don't yeah. you think? It's yeah. always like, don't just say, well, we really appreciate it, but... Yes, but who yeah. are we to, you know, right. have somebody else, you know, take the time to write a thoughtful I, rejection? Right, <laughs> definitely. I, I yep. remember... And that, it reminds us of that. It right. I remember that, yeah. there was a, some contest, uh, publishing contest that I had submitted my manuscript to, and the rejection letter came on a postcard. And there were like 15 categories on the postcard and then with little boxes. And then one, That's of, them, amazing. one of them was checked. And so there was one category that said, uh, you're, we didn't take your manuscript. Please send us, a, please apply again next year. And under that was, sorry, we didn't take your manuscript. And that was the the one that I got checked. Right. It was, right. don't even, it was not don't even, even bother. Right. The, right. The Edmund Wilson, Wilson version of rejecting. The, yeah. He, he had templates for his, uh, right. For his, uh, for his, we're afraid Mr. Wilson yeah. cannot yeah. appear yeah. at your school. He would, he would he fill in like A, B, C or yeah. D and say Mr. Wilson's busy because he's teaching or he's writing a book or. <laughs> right, right, right. Anyway. Right. He will would, not comment would, on your main. Would yeah. you, um, would you read us a poem? Sure. Oh, please. Sure. I would love to. Um, Anything, uh, anything dealer's choice. Here. Yeah. All right. Well, l- let me. Um, um, this is the poem um, I read to the Somerville Poet Laureate Committee uh, when I was um, I was applying for the Poet Laureateship. So this is my this is my Somerville poem. And um, it's called Jerry Garcia in a Somerville parking lot. (laughs) Past midnight, a man in his late 60s, tall with long gray hair and a bushy gray, almost white beard, returns to the side street public parking lot where he'd left his car. It's hot and dark, and the lot is unlit. At the far end, he can make out two men smoking, leaning against the car right next to his. Alone and apprehensive, he starts across the lot and soon catches a whiff of what they're smoking. Suddenly, one of them asks, Want to hear a joke? Startled, he hesitates, but obliges. Sure, he says, what's the joke? Okay, what do you call a woman with only one leg? I don't know, he plays along. What do you call a woman with only one leg? Eileen. (laughs) It takes him a second. He almost groans and then begins to laugh. 
Want to drag, the guy asks. He's just a kid. The other one never says a word. No, no thanks, the man answers. I can inhale from here. This time, it's the kid who laughs. Okay, I only ask because you look like Jerry Garcia. Have a nice night. <laughs> you too, the man answers, unlocking his car. Thanks. And all the way home, he keeps chuckling at lucky escapes, wildly mistaken identities, sweet, dumb jokes, how little it takes to restore his affection for the city. And at least for the moment, gratefully alive, can't stop laughing or laughing at himself for laughing at his latest temporary reprieve. So if you ever wanted to know what life in Somerville was like, <laughs> <laughs> if this podcast hasn't, you know, given you a good enough yeah, glimpse into that. Yeah. Well, I have to say that the, the, the people who were interviewing me laughed mm. and and I think I warned them that this poem has a terrible joke in it. And and I think they appreciated <laughs> that, sure. that that yeah. that warning. Um, but I think it, you know, I, I think it was one of the things that, that, that made them offer me the, the, the poet laureate mm. position because I actually, I did write about Somerville. I cared about Somerville. And, and it's, it's not so much an ode as it is almost like a ballad, you know, in the way in which, <laughs> well, yeah, in which it's, it's got these very vivid characters. Right, and it's a story, it's a yeah. narrative, which is what I which is what I like to do. So again to go back to this this idea that I started writing monologues. Mm. I started writing poems. Mm. Some of them were based on real people, some of them were completely made up, but I couldn't be an actor. So I was writing kind of plays for myself to act to you know to play different characters when i when i gave a reading and and i you know people still say to me people will come up after a poetry reading i give and say you know well you should be writing plays or do you ever mm -hmm. think about writing plays and um and i think my poems are poems Mm -hmm. And that I actually have, n I think plays are really hard to write. And I, I don't think I have any talent for writing a play. And I don't have any desire to write a play. It's a different kind of tension yeah. that, you're, that you're sort of yeah. winding up and releasing. Well, the plot, too often in plays, the plot is more important than the character. Right. And, and, um. I, I have no interest in writing a play. My first book, I kind of turned, which was, you know, these people, which with all these monologues, mm. um, I turned into a theater piece um, for the Poets Theater. This was sometime in the 90s. They were looking for poets to, to you know, to, to write plays. And I didn't think I could write a play, but I thought it would be very interesting to see what would happen if there were like four actors, 
three men, one woman, playing all these different parts. And I, th I thought it worked really, yeah. really well. I, I, I was the director, and um, I had a great time. I had four really wonderful actors. And, um, you know, one of them playing me, <laughs> in a way. Sure, uh, yeah. Because I was a, a character in, mm -hmm. in, in, um, uh, in, these, in, in these poems. Um, so that was the closest I ever got. And then I didn't have to rewrite anything. I just, um, I just put the poems together in, mm -hmm. a, in, in, in an order. And, um, it's kind um, of an interesting sort of way to approach poetry that's kind of been lost in a certain way. I mean, in the sense of like, like a play for voices. Right. You know? Like un Under Milk Wood is kind of like that. Abs absolutely. Yeah, even like Anne Sexton would do these characters that were kind of speaking, sure. you know, even oh, the yeah. plays of Yeats to yeah. some degree. Yeah, yeah, those are so interesting. Yeah. so, mm. and nobody does them. Mm. Nobody. Well, you'd have to probably do them in like a, you know, a collection of you know, because they're all usually very they're short, pretty they're short, short, short acts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. although, although, um, um, the composer Cambridge. Composer, MacArthur Fellow, Pulitzer Prize winner, John Harbison, mm. who did an opera for the Metropolitan Opera based on The Great Gatsby. Okay. He, an earlier opera of his was a one-act opera called A Full Moon in March. Mm. And it was an operatic version of one of Yeats's plays. And it was perfect. It was almost, it, it almost needed to have music. Yeah. And it was really beautiful and mysterious. I I, I loved it. Uh, I saw it several times, and and um, and I kind of you know I, I sort of always hoped that John would um, would do more Yeats, but I, he never he never did. He went on to the Great Gatsby. Is that the really long one that's like many hours long or something? And no. Oh, okay. That's no. a different thing. That okay. was that was that was and I it, I never saw it, although yeah, I think they're like, still doing it. But it's this acting company that reads the whole book. Okay. And it's, you know, what, five hours long or seven yeah. hours long. Yeah, something yeah. Like and there's that. like a dinner in the middle and then yeah. they have to finish it or whatever. Yeah, which is yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. Andy Kaufman did that once, apparently. Oh, he like really? went to see, he went on stage and apparently was like in a persona of like a pompous English teacher or something and like in a suit or whatever and just uh -huh. literally stood there and just read The Great Gatsby just wow. in the same voice, I think, for like the entire, maybe it's the entire book or like for two hours or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, it's a pretty short book, right, yeah. but it's a, it's a book. Yeah. It's a whole book. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. One other fun thing that I thought we might do Ooh. to sort of... All right. Round this out, and okay. uh, and uh, in honor of, I mean, it's it's a week late, but we did have President's Day, and this is something that I did want to do on the, <laughs> on the podcast. Uh -oh. um, I was hoping that we wouldn't mind each taking a turn at reading one of the poems from the poetry of Richard Milhouse Nixon. <laughs> in uh, honor of why not? Day. Why not? Right? Why not? We have right? a, we have no. 
<laughs> no longer our worst president. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. We managed so we to have, outdo. Uh, out, yeah. We have four to choose from. Uh, you we know, were laughing at we'll that over the other day. Those two to choose just from. The, we'll the give you these two to of, choose like, from. Nixon poetry. And, then, uh, and then I'll do a third one. So this comes from um, uh, the collected po- or the poems of Richard Milhouse Nixon, which was collected, uh, compiled in 1974 from, I believe, the tapes, speeches, you know, various random, you know, bits and pieces wow. by um, Jack okay. S. Margulies. Uh, 1974. So, okay. so Matt, why don't you go ahead and pick either one, one of those two? Uh, okay. Is this? Do we all have the same page, or is this a different page? No, you have two there, and, and then there's two that. Okay. The okay. Schwartz Can has. I do both? So I'm trying. So the thing is, the, the immediate you mentioned this before, and I thought it was really funny. And you may have to cut this out later, but just the concept of like Nixon poetry. So just the idea of him being like, rat fucker, cocksucker, <laughs> cocksucking rat fuckers. Right? Why are we, why are there all these cocksuckers and rat fuckers? Right. You can yeah. choose to do it in a Nixon voice. That's, that's the that's the debate. That's, that's totally the thing. I was like, would I do this in a Nixon voice, or do I do this just like? Maybe we can do a version of each and see which one works best. You can edit out the bad one. I, I, I know I can't do it. I use it. But I'm going to do it in a poetry voice. Yeah, yes, yeah. I, want, I want you to commit to, to, to the delivery. Yeah. Whatever you choose Whatever to do, it is. It's, it's, it's one take. And just pick one of those two. You have to pick one of those. One of the two? Because yeah, I'm going to read another one as well. So whichever, okay. one you don't, whichever one you don't read. Okay. I'm going to do in just a poem voice. This will be read very earnestly. This is a poem called, I Can't Recall. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that poem. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, this might be a little bit something that, that, that uh, flips a switch for you. I can't recall. You can say, I don't remember. You can say, I can't recall. I can't give any answer to that that I can recall. All right, which one would you like to do? All right, I'm going to do... Um... Oh, all right. I'm going to do together. (laughs) We are all in it together. (laughs) We take a few shots and it will be over. Don't worry. I wouldn't want to be on the other side right now. <laughs> I don't know if I can if I can top that. Oh no, this this yeah, no, this, this poem is actually just too good. Not Do you have to the Ryan Nancy no. stuff too? Um, the what now? No, no I, I I did not bring the uh, the love letters of uh, Ron Reagan and Nancy Reagan. I have it's called I Love You, Ronnie. It's a collection of the love letters. <laughs> I also want to do a, an entire segment on it at one point. Um, but uh, we'll we'll just finish it with this one here. This one is called the position. <laughs> the position is to withhold information (laughs) and to cover up this is totally true you could say this is totally untrue (laughs) 
you could that's say. Kantian. That's Kantian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that's, that's every complex epistemology has every, 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 yeah, the, the, every Those are antimonies, if ever I saw one. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there's an there's a ontological uncertainty. That, <laughs> this, this other one, I, I kind of would like to read this yes, other absolutely, one. Too, absolutely. It's, please, it's really yeah. profound. Yes. Sure, of course. It's this man was the president. Yes. Right. Twice. Yeah. In a row. Yeah. Don't, don't. Yeah, I, don't I, I, say I hate that. to have to say, Yeah, we're don't all breaking out in hives now. But yeah. Yeah. In the end, it's called. In the end, we are going to be bled to death. And in the end, it is all going to come out anyway. <laughs> Then you get the worst of both worlds. <laughs> that was Professor Lloyd Schwartz reading the, to this. <laughs> reading the poems of Richard Milhouse Nixon. You get to be poet laureate, and you, and, you and just don't know how low you can go. A couple of galoots in a room, and suddenly you're doing you're Emily, uh, Emily uh, Elizabeth Bishop and, and Robert Lowell, and now Richard Millhouse Nixon. So we've been speaking with uh, a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, poet uh, Lloyd Schwartz, uh, and we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for your time, and thanks you're so always much. welcome on the program. Oh, thanks a lot. This was really fun, and just imagine spending an hour talking about yourself. Yeah, <laughs> right. It wasn't that what, bad. What right? could be yeah. cooler than that? And we didn't sure. even charge you. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. right, and I didn't offer to pay you either. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank Thanks. you. This was yeah. really great. So that about wraps her up for this episode. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate Lloyd stopping by. Uh, we promise to get another episode out to you sooner than the uh, uh, time period between the last one and this one. Apologies for that one. Um, if you like what you hear, please show us some love on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash yardsfuse. Uh, money that goes to that doesn't go to us. It goes to... Uh, paying our writers who bring you the best in arts criticism and coverage in the Boston area and beyond uh, at artsfuse.org. So thanks a lot for listening. Uh, this has been the Artsfuse Podcast. I'm Lucas Spiro. I'm Matt Hansen. Till next time. <laughs>